0: You are listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.
1: Amen. Thank you. Um, hello. If you don't know me, I'm Thomas Torrey, I volunteer here. I also do the uh, announcements once a month. So, Dan, that was about a B, B minus. Pretty good. You'll get there. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> it's true not about performance we were uh, at the beach last weekend celebrating my daughter's 16th birthday so we were not here and i'm glad i did my due diligence of listening to dan's message last week because it's sort of a perfect setup for what i had been preparing and feeling the leading to talk about today which is faith um so I'm going to very much do a yes and to Dan's message. Yes and is an improv phrase, you know, where you have this active dialogue and you lob something out and I say yes. And then I continue it as opposed to shutting it down or pivoting on it. Um, and I was really struck by the, vulnerable, the vulnerability that Dan showed with the message that it was really something the Lord, the Holy Spirit was leading him to share in a way that he, as he expressed, he hadn't done in a long time, just sort of stepping out in faith with the message itself. So that gave me a lot of confidence that the Lord was preparing something within me to share today on this idea of faith. So, Lord, have your way. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Um, if you're like me, you might have a negative reaction to the word faith because it is such an overused overhyped sort of word, because it can mean so many things. We apply it to so many things. And as a filmmaker, faith-based film kind of gives me the cringes as I hear it as a concept, often in execution as well. But uh, as an idea, um, it's a genre of movie, which usually means sentimental and very safe, and there's a gospel message in it. And and there are great faith-based films, don't get me wrong. But the word itself... It's lost meaning for me. And so I want to try to reclaim the word for myself and for us and talk about faith and explore the difference between faith and belief and dig into the idea of mystery as a part of our faith. And then I want to sort of end by talking about the thing that kind of holds it all together in a really practical sense. Uh, My hope is that you'll see your faith through a new lens this morning. It'll be deeper, it'll be richer, and ultimately it will have a sustaining effect on this life of faith, of following Jesus. We are in this summer series of following Jesus. So that's my prayer. This is definitely a message for the long haul, a message for the second half of life when hope belief, inspiration, are lost. There is something deeper that can sustain, and that is faith. I grew up in a church where we had a very famous message, a sermon that was preached. I was too young to remember it, but it was a sermon that was often talked about because it was exactly three words long. So I'll I'll preach that message right here. This is the entire sermon. Faith, faith, faith. That was the whole sermon. That was the whole message. And uh, they talked about it in my church because of its brevity, its shortness. But if you can kind of feel the, there's a profoundness to that, to what's not said, to the mystery around that faith. Because it's, you know, at first like faith, I have faith. 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 Amen. I'm done. No, no, no. Uh, We'll go deeper. Um, Let's look at the definition of faith uh, through Hebrews 11, chapter 1 through 3, a very familiar verse. Now, faith, this is the NRSV, a lot of, this is a fun verse to look at all of the different translations because there's a lot of different words that are used in this sentence. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Faith. Is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see, a trust, a conviction? And if you read different translations, there's a lot of different words. Sometimes they put the assurance by the faith. Now, faith is the assurance in what we hope for and the evidence of what we do not see, the trust in what we hope for, the conviction, a steadiness. Dan used the word last week, the persuasion being persuaded, the Hebrew writer is literally defining the word faith. He's not making a commentary on the concept. He's defining what the word is, but he's making a very crucial connection between faith and sight. Faith and sight, assurance about what we do not see. And in verse three, he sort of concedes that we can't know rationally that the universe was formed by god it's by faith we understand that the universe was formed by god and that word understand there is a very specific greek word which means to perceive without our literal eyes without the senses of our sight a perception that is one layer deeper to understand to see with a deeper eye. What is seen was not made out of what was visible. A crucial connection, faith and the unseen. There's sight, literally to see, to know. But then there's perception, understanding. And I sort of want to explore this idea of three levels of perception. Knowledge, belief, Faith. To know, to rationally know is the first level of perception and it's the most concrete. Because it requires our senses. Eye, ears, nose, throat. No. That's the Charlotte eye, ears, nose, throat association. Sight, touch, smell, taste. Sound. Our senses. To know requires our senses. It is the most concrete. The Hebrew word for know is yada, yada. And it's used for many applications, famously for intimate relations between two people when Adam knew Eve. And I suddenly realized what the Seinfeld yada, yada, yada meant after that. It was the consequence of eating the tree in the garden, knowledge to know good and evil. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. They perceived the material world. I can know there's a universe around me. I can know it because I can perceive it through my senses. But I cannot know that there's a God force behind that universe. Not with those same senses. That takes belief, which is the second level of perception. Because as Thomas Merton said, we can only believe what we do not know. We can only believe what we do not know. And this gave me a lot of peace because we live in a world that craves knowledge, that wants to know, that has to know. And as a thinker, I am constantly wanting to know and wanting to understand. I want to read John 20. It's a well-known passage. It is when Thomas gets his nickname Doubting Thomas. And is there any other Thomases in the room? Okay. Maybe you can relate if you have a biblical name where you grow up being projected on the biblical character you might be named after. And if you're Thomas, you're always being called Doubting Thomas. Really started to bother me around 10 years old and it just never let up. And I would always defend Thomas. Because when... The disciples were like, we can't go back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill Jesus. Thomas was the one who said, then let's go and die with him. He was all in. There's another thing that Thomas did that I want to look at in this passage. John 20, verse 24 to 28. I'll just read it. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Initially, Jesus has died and has resurrected, and he started to reveal himself to his followers. And Thomas wasn't there that the, the first time that Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I can sympathize with Thomas because the disciples are saying, no, no, no. We've seen the risen Christ. And it makes sense to me that the guy who was so all in where he's like, let us go die with him. Might have had a little too much faith dashed over his life, hope dashed to when they're like, no, 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 he's alive and we see him. This wasn't three days after that's when Christ died. This was, I don't know, maybe another couple weeks because he'd already started to reveal himself. So Thomas is going for days holding on to this hope that Jesus is who he said he was the risen Christ, God. And I can sympathize with him saying, no, 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 no. Don't, this is too hard. I don't want to be let down again. I, I, I can't believe guys. I, I'm sure you saw someone. I not just need to see him. He's talking about one of his senses. He's like, I need to put all my senses on him. I need to touch him. I need to touch the wounds. And Jesus in his mercy Gives Thomas what he needs in that moment. And there's an association with sight that Jesus is making. Because for Thomas, it wasn't just seeing, it was touching. He said, I need knowledge. So Christ said, okay, let me give you knowledge. You've made it through the first level of perception. I'm here. Touch the wounds. It's me. And then he says, but blessed are those who make it through the second level. Belief without seeing now Christ doesn't reveal himself to us today in the way he did Thomas and it's why this account is so crucial because it's the crisis we face in our modern society I can only know that which I can see and I cannot believe that which I cannot also know that is our postmodern stance I have to know And unless I know, I cannot believe. It's the primacy of knowledge. It's promoting knowledge above belief. But you can only believe what you don't know. You can't do both. You must embrace an intellectual leap for belief. And that is terrifying. You must view the world with the material world through the first level of perception, knowing there's a deeper one, believing there's a deeper one. I'll come back to Thomas in a minute. In Mark 10 with blind Bartimaeus, Christ continues to make the belief, faith to sight connection, and he sort of turns it around. Jesus said to him, the blind man, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus believed without seeing. That belief produced his healing. Christ said, go, your faith has made you well. The reward was his physical sight. It could have been any other ailment, and there are examples of faith be healing other ailments, but I believe that one was very specific. Christ gave him back his literal sight because he, always, he already possessed this interior sight of belief. But I want to talk about a third level of perception, which is the scariest because sometimes it's the darkest it's like the levels of the ocean the surface and you go just beneath the surface and that's where most of us when we experience the ocean we're either looking at it or we're just by the surface but we all know that ocean goes really deep and it gets really dark and it gets heavy and it's big and and we're on a planet that is mostly ocean and most of the ocean is at these depths that we, can't, we haven't even explored. And that's the level of faith. It's like if knowledge is at the surface, beliefs right below, faith is when you go down deep. Knowledge is sensory. Belief is Intellectual faith is guttural it's at the soul level and if we can only believe what we don't know what happens when we don't know but we cannot quite even believe what happens when my intellect lets me down or if i am part of the special needs community where intellect isn't even a privilege how do they have faith? Have you ever thought about that? If our faith is an intellectual ascent, what happens for children or special needs who cannot actually make that leap? The church I grew up in was next door to a home for the mentally... Um, uh, the handicapped, mentally slow, and they were all senior citizens. So it was people whose intellect never rose above two or three years old, and they were all now elderly, and they all lived together. They were part of our church. They were some of our most vibrant people. They would sing, they would hold hands. They possessed no ability to make this intellectual leap of belief. But I promised they had faith. We shared a faith with them. And I'll talk more about that sharing in a minute. The third level of the perception, it transcends our senses. It transcends our intellect, our emotions, our mind. And it's the level of faith which will always necessarily, by definition, be a place of mystery. In the same way, the depths of the ocean are a mystery. Have you ever heard this? The opposite of faith isn't doubt. It's... Certainty. You ever heard that? The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. It's not scripture, but it was said by a very wise person. I don't know who, because I've heard it said so many times. And as a person growing in his faith, I have come to embrace it as something that is true, that bears truth. And it's tough because postmodern Western Christians... The sort of the Protestant Christian, the evangelical and the charismatic church, which we're sort of part of, you know, historically, that is all part of this modern Western, uh, you know, belief, current religion. We run from mystery. We really don't like mystery. We really like certainty. Even us charismatics who really are spirit empowered and who believe in a Holy Spirit. If you think about it, we really run for mystery and I observe it or I have in the past where portions of scripture or ideas that are fundamentally mysterious, people will try to define them and and go off on these whole doctrinal tangents just to sort of make sense about this one fleeting verse because I just can't accept mystery. I got to have certainty because we put knowledge at the top. But faith is being very uncertain in an intellectual level. We resist mystery. We cling to certainty. That's the crisis of Thomas. We can know that Jesus existed, not because like Thomas, we've seen him or the disciples. We were there, but historically, we can know that there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth who existed. Some might even say that's up for debate, but no real scholar, secular or Christian, would take that position. The man Jesus was a historical figure, so we can sort of have that knowledge. And then we can go a second step, like Thomas or the disciples were sort of saying, no, we've seen Jesus. And and it's funny how the, the, the verse seems to just sort of accept the presence of ghosts because, you know, when talking about Jesus being on the water, they thought it was a ghost, which was a really interesting um, sort of statement. And the disciples are saying, no, 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 Jesus is here. And, and, and the writer in Matthew makes, or John makes a point of saying, the doors were all shut. So this supernatural appearance from Jesus showed up. So we can maybe believe that then there's this ghost-like figure of Jesus in front of us, but we cannot know he is God. We cannot know... That he sent the Holy Spirit, we must have faith. If I can know Jesus existed, I could maybe even believe that there was some supernatural things at work. Faith is where the knowledge of Jesus as God comes, the revelation. And Thomas's revelation in having his eyes open wasn't actually that he believed Jesus was right there or that Jesus even was alive. The revelation Thomas had was that Jesus was God. His response was, oh, you're alive. It wasn't, oh, you're alive. It's my Lord and my God. The first account of Jesus being called God in the New Testament is right here in this verse. So as someone who grew up with the name Thomas, I'll remind people of that when they say doubting Thomas. Thomas was the first to call Jesus God. It's true. At least as it was recorded. (laughs) But that is the revelation of faith. That is the response to faith. It's this guttural response in the divine. Jesus as God, God as God, ideas too big for human understanding, mysterious ideas. God is unknowable to the rational mind. And that terrifies the rational mind. And like Thomas, we cling to the material. We cling to that which I can see. Our version is to try to pull the mystery of God up through the levels of perception from faith to belief to knowledge. And it cannot be done. In the same way, we can't pull the depths of the ocean up to the top. So don't hear me saying that God, God can't be known, so to heck with it all. That is not what I'm saying. The way we know Him is through faith. Think about this. Just take some additional intellectual explorations with me. To render God into words, simply to verbalize Him, is to create metaphor. And remember, I I, last year I did a whole message on the power of metaphor and how it is our greatest tool for communicating meaning. It is deeper truth than the literal. But our belief cannot mature toward faith if our belief can never mature toward faith. If it can never go deep, embrace mystery, it will never be big enough or deep enough to hold that mystery. Religion, uh, the word is like realign, re-ligament, re-ligion, to bring together. Conversely, diabolical means to separate, to split into two. Diablo, the devil, is to rip apart, and religion is to bring back together. Religion is the way we frame the mystery. As Christians, we frame the mystery through a very specific shape, the shape of Christ. That is our framing of the mystery. Other religions embrace mystery. They frame it through a different lens. Some people who sort of try to stand outside of religion, try not to frame it at all. I don't know if anybody's read Rick Rubin's book on creativity. It's... um, Rick Rubin's a music producer. He's a very spiritual guy, very spiritual thinker. He has a book on creativity. He's not a religious person. He's a very spiritual person. And he concedes that there's this mysterious force that's sort of at the heart of creativity. He calls it source, which a lot of Buddhist thinkers might also use that word. And I don't actually mind that, that, uh, those words because he's conceding there's mystery. He's attempting not to frame it. And as Christians, we can say there is a mystery, there is source. And we frame that through the person of Christ. And like Thomas, our faith has produced the revelation that Christ is God. So the function of religion is to bring back that which the enemy tries to separate. And if you try to remove mystery from your faith, if you try to reduce your faith to mere belief... And reduce belief to mere knowledge, it's always gonna crumble to the material, the sensory level. It's just the knowledge level. It's just too thin. It's too thin to bear the weight of God. Put another way, as Ephesians 4 says, you're just gonna be blown about by every wind of doctrine. The function of faith is not to reduce mystery to rational clarity. That's what Merton said, and yet that's our temptation. Faith is a cognition that understands without images and representations. That's him again. If belief is understanding what we do not know, I think faith is understanding what we cannot know. And there again is that word, understanding, which we go back to Hebrews. To believe is to understand that God made the universe. This perception without sight. Faith is understanding. Seeing with an interior sight. That which we cannot know. Comfort. Peace in the mystery. Peace in the unknowable is faith. Dan put it beautifully last week. He said comfort In the uneasiness, he's stepping out on the boat in faith, one foot in and then the other one there. Comfort in those waves, in that mystery, that is faith. And he made the point about time, how important time is. In the same way that pain is instant, but suffering is pain over time, Faith necessarily requires time to come to a place of comfort in mystery. At least that has been my journey of faith. We're talking about why I follow Jesus. And if I can get real here for a moment, I was asked to speak earlier in the summer about this and it ended up not happening. We were traveling a lot. My father-in-law passed away. So there was a lot going on and I wasn't able to speak. But if I'm honest, I was also kind of afraid because I knew this would be what I would talk about because it's why I follow Christ. And if your beliefs change if your faith deepens if you evolve to a certain place of just comfort in the mystery it it can be very vulnerable because not everyone's on the same journey and if we elevate what we know and what we believe what i believe might not be what you believe what you believe might not be what i believe and I believe things now that I didn't used to believe and I used to believe things now that I didn't. And that changing as we sort of plumb to the depths of the ocean is scary for someone to go through and it's scary for someone to talk about. So if I can just get real for a moment, there's an element of, of fear of, that is natural to this depth, to this journey of faith. As someone who really leans into the mystery. Not everyone's on that journey. There are people who will say, lean into certainty. A fellow brother in Christ, he's not part of this church, but he's an amazing man of God. He's all about certainty. And I want to be like, bless you, man, that's your journey. I'm kind of all about mystery right now, as I almost turn 42. But instead of confusion, which is not a product of faith, it is comfort, it is peace in the mystery. And instead of deconstructing to a place where I sort of abandon it and just go to source mode like Rick Rubin, I'm actually leaning in and doubling down on the framing of that mystery in the person of Christ. Not because he showed up to me and said, put my hand, put, put your fingers in my hand. But because... I have felt that comfort leaning into that faith and I'm ch- and I choose to share that faith with a body. And I want to talk about that aspect now as the crucial the crucial linchpin for the life of faith. It is sharing the collective life of faith. And that's why my journey is actually really important to this body because your journey is really important to this body. It is how we collectively experience a shared faith. You, how, you, you can't do that on your own. You can't do that individually. It's why community is so crucial. Not important, not suggested, not really, really promoted, crucial. It's why our framing of the mystery requires us to share this framing, this experience in the form of church. Church is how we share the experience. The rituals we go to, and I promise we're not a ritual-free church. We worship together. We have a speaker every Sunday. We do prayer teams. There are beautiful rituals and spiritual practices that we practice. Other churches have other practices. That is how a group shares an experience. In family, you share the experience of the holidays through the ritual and traditions of Christmas or whatever. You you, you share an experience through those shared practices. And the same fear that that leads us to reduce mystery to clarity, that same fear is the same fear that tries to reduce church to an individual experience. Faith is validated by a shared experience. Think about it. A collective experience solves for the threat of any one individual experience reframing the mystery. We all know those people who might have gone rogue or they have some crazy idea. We've gone through some crazy season. And that's okay. That is part of our experience. We're diving into the water. It's unknowable. It's mysterious. But the shared experience solves for any one <laughs> one rogue idea. Because new religions are born every day when we abandon a shared experience does this shared experience look like? It's us singing the praises of an unknowable God rationally, one that we've come to know gutturally. It's singing those songs together in surrender. The raising of hands is a posture of surrender, of adoration. What does it look like? It's confessing the mystery of faith together with one voice. Some churches do this through a creed. I grew up saying the Nicene Creed, and we would say, let us now pronounce the mystery of our faith. That was the introduction. And we'd all get up there and say this creed. I cannot imagine every single person might have believed every word or phrase of that creed. you think about it. Ah, that proceeds from the Father. Okay, that, the, one. You know, you, you really dig. But as a shared experience, we pronounce the faith. Because it's not about our intellectual assent. It is about a shared experience. What does the shared experience look like? It's us eating of a body and blood together, taking one bread, breaking it amongst us. It looks like my crisis of faith being calmed by your peace and steadiness. It's when your crisis of faith happens, being calmed by my steadiness. It's your doubt about some doctrine being tempered by my conviction. And it's my doubt being tempered by your conviction. In short, the shared experience of faith looks a lot like church. Because church isn't a body that shares knowledge. And this might be controversial, and may, and, and, but I think it's kind of what I've been getting at. It's not even a body that shares belief. Certainly, it technically can't be that. If we have children who have not yet developed the mental faculties for intellect, it's a body that shares faith, and it shares the experience of that faith. There's a transactional transactional element to faith that we really have to mature past. Believe this, get this. It's not wrong. Belief is transactional. It's just right below the surface. And there's a verse in Philippians that is a great model for the transactional element of our belief. But faith, I might not even say it's non-transactional. I might say it's anti-transactional because it really almost defies the intellect. Job, his faith was so deep, he said, Though you slay me, I will trust you. That is an anti-transactional posture of faith because the one we sort of are constructed is believe and live, live forever, in fact. Have a mansion in the streets of gold. There is a transactional element to belief, but then there is one that is deeper, that defies transaction. In Ecclesiastes, if you haven't read it lately, read it. It is a beautiful testament against reward-based belief. So let me let you all all off the hook. You don't have to know because you can only believe what you don't know. And if you're struggling with belief, that is okay. You're in good company because you can only have faith in what you can't know and what can be really hard to believe. And I'm here to tell you that there's comfort in the mystery waiting for the one who surrenders, and it takes surrender. That is where Thomas got first, my Lord and my God. Surrender is one of the most subversive acts we can do, especially in a postmodern society that promotes the primacy of knowledge, to surrender to mystery, to faith. So, faith, faith, faith. Father, we surrender. We're all here because we frame this mystery through the person of Christ, and we share in the expression of that framing through the body of Queen City Church we surrender to what we might not know or what might be hard to believe sometimes. And we ask that you would grant us the faith, the depth, the sustaining faith that is so guttural, so deep, so wide and so heavy that the storms of life, the ups and downs of intellect, of knowledge, of belief they all just fade in the richness of faith. Forgive us for when we lack that faith, for when we put our own intellect or knowledge ahead. And we try to bear that faith on our own. As Dan talked about last week, faith not in ourselves, but in Christ, the one on the water, the one on the ocean. We surrender. We ask you would build our faith, whatever our journey we're on. For those of us young in our faith, old in our faith, young in life, old in life, continue us on, continue us on this journey of faith. And For the times that we don't know, we don't believe the Diablo, the diabolical one who might seek to come in and break apart. Give us the calm and the peace in that mystery to say, no, I will have peace. I will have steadiness in this uneasiness. I will have peace in this unknowable thing. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that is how we frame this mystery. Amen. Thank you. Bless you. you. No
0: That was beautiful, beautiful. And this message matters a lot to me, because there are times in my life when I don't know that I could have continued in my faith had I not leaned into what Thomas Paul is talking about. And I met you, everyone called you Thomas Paul. I't is Thomas Paul anymore? This double name thing. I know. I know. I'm going to recapture that moment. T.P. and J.M over here. Absolutely beautiful, though. I got a couple of thoughts. Um, Number one, I really love the idea of reclaiming the word religion. I think we are in a little bit of a complicated community here. We have multiple ideas about what that word means. Words are constructs, right? And they're created around context. But in the New Testament, the word religion means worshipfulness. It means the practices that we build around loving God. And the New Testament is all for that form of religion. So I love that Thomas used the word religion. I got other words I want to use that we grew up using religion for, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. But I just thought data, knowledge, and wisdom, all this stuff is important. But nobody lives from these things. Nobody lives from them. We live from a place of belief and faith. And you know that's true if you ever got into a political argument with one of your friend's or relatives. No one ever changes their mind, no matter how many YouTube videos you send them. No matter how right you are, no matter how better your information is, nobody changes their mind. Because no one lives from information. They live from somewhere else and they find information to wrap around the thing that they live from. And that is belief and faith, right? But it doesn't mean that data, knowledge, and wisdom are unimportant. But faith... And belief are what you do with the data, knowledge, and wisdom that you have. I have some friends on the internet who like to post things like, science is going to save us. I love science, by the way. I'm fascinated by science. But science will not save you. If you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, you understand why science is not going to save you. It's because science is data. And belief and faith and love and your relationship with Jesus, define what you do with that data, but the data and information alone will kill you if it's in, if it's in the wrong hands, right? Is it science has given us medicine, it's given us uh, opportunity to communicate and connect. It's given, given us a lot of good things. It's also given us guns and bombs and climate change and all right. There's many negative things caused by science. And I'm not, um, not going to re-preach Thomas's message here. But my point is that if you have any doubt in your mind about the mystery that Thomas is talking about, just think about this. Have you realized that you make all the most important decisions in your life when you are least capable of making those decisions? The person you decide to marry, you make that decision before you know pretty much anything about relationships or who that person is really going to become. The choice to have children, you have kids before you have any idea about what it's going to be like to be a parent. The job you decide to choose, the school you decide to go to, following Jesus. I decided to follow Jesus before I had any idea about God or religion or the nature of the universe, right? But you don't get to choose these things after the fact, because you don't get to live your life after you know. You don't get to live your life by knowing the end from the beginning. You live your life one step at a time, one day at a time, believing that the next day is going to be different than today is. And I need this message from Thomas every single day of my life. And so I just wanted to affirm him and come up here and tell you how important this message is to me. And this is the last thing I'm going to say because i like going way too long in my little affirmation here is that think about all the words you use when you talk about the things that matter the most to you, right? What happens when you get into love? What do you call it? You fall into love. You are captivated. You can't stop. All of these words that we use when we talk about the things that matter the most to us all denote a loss of agency, and we live in a, in a time where we're obsessed with agency, with curating the perfect life or living the perfect life or knowing exactly how things are going to end up based on the decisions we're making right now. And that isn't bad, except you really can spend all your time on the data knowledge and wisdom and being as safe as humanly possible and making the right decisions and never actually live in to that life. Because like Thomas is saying, the data knowledge and the wisdom are not the same thing. As faith. Certainty is oftentimes the opposite of faith because oftentimes our demand for certainty paralyzes us in the day to day opportunities to live our life from the place that we were called to live. Amen. I think Dan's going to come up and close. <laughs>